And we're live with JavaScript Terror. Hello, everyone. Uh, first, I need to apologize. Uh, React Conf um, had created or, or had like provided a ton of awesome technology and microphones and stuff for me to be able to do this show uh, with really great quality. Unfortunately, there were some tech technical difficulties with that, and so we're just using the microphone from my computer. And so if it sounds bad, I'm really sorry about that, and I'll try to make sure that's not a problem in the future. Um, so we're live at uh, ReactConf right now um, in the Grand Hyatt in San Francisco. And this is the second day. We've had a ton of awesome talks. We have some more talks this afternoon. And for this show, we're going to have some people on um, who are speakers who um, will talk with us for like lightning interviews for about five minutes apiece. And um, so it should be fast-paced and interesting and fun. Um, before we get into the show too much, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors. So first we have Egghead.io, and they are a library of tons of bite-sized videos about JavaScript development and, um, and the web uh, platform in general. And Frontend Masters is an expert-led workshop uh, with a lot of training courses on JavaScript, uh, functional JavaScript, asynchronous programming, those kinds of things. Uh, so check them out for that. Uh, TrackJS is a uh, monitoring platform, uh, error tracking platform uh, for your applications. So uh, check them out to keep track of um, errors before your customers notice them. And then uh, WallabyJS runs your code coverage as you're coding in your editor. It's amazing. Uh, very, very cool technology. So I recommend that you check them out um, for, uh, for that awesome stuff at WallabyJS.com. And uh, CodeCove is coverage done right. They uh, have a lot of really awesome integration and tools uh, for GitHub and other things. Um, and so check out codecove.io uh, for information about them. Awesome. So let's go ahead and start our interviews. Ben, why don't you come on uh, down? It's uh, good to meet you. Yeah, you too. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Glad so, to be here. Uh, yeah, thanks. So your, uh, your talk was titled React, What Lies Ahead. Can you give us like a basic idea of what your talk is all about? Yeah, so you know, I just tried to outline the things that we're thinking about for, uh, for React and uh, how, how we can help people build great apps. And so that really falls into two pieces, the user experience piece for actually making the apps great and the developer experience for making it easier to build those apps. Um, and so I, for both of those categories, I uh, outlined a, a few ideas we have. And these are all, uh, these are all ideas for, uh, for the future, and we haven't written code for most of them, but uh, my hope was that uh, we can share what we're thinking about with the audience and uh, help get people brainstorming on uh, on ways that we can solve these problems and hopefully inspire people to uh, fix some of them themselves, too. Cool, cool. Yeah, I think that's kind of a trend of the React community is it's very much like th this isn't Facebook's code. It is the React community's code, and we're all gathering around to make this community better. Yes. Cool. Yeah, that's absolutely how we think about it. Good, good. So um, what are some ways that people can get involved in, in some of the ideas that you propose? Um, well, I mean, like, honestly, when we look at the community, like, obviously, there are, you know, hundreds, thousands of people using React, and that's really great. But, you know, I look at some of the awesome projects that people have made. Um, people uh, make projects like Redux and React Hotloader and uh, Material UI and React Router and Enzyme and all of these great projects, which uh, uh, do a really great job of just solving entire classes of problems. And then um, that means that on the React team, we don't have to worry about those as much. And you know, as much as possible, when we're, when we're building React, we try to make it uh, so that it is possible to build all of this stuff in you know user space where. It, you don't need to make changes to the React core in order to build these libraries, and you know there there are still a few uh, a few areas where we're a little bit lacking right there, and I think it's hard to build some of this stuff in uh, in user space. But for for mo most of the stuff that I outlined in my talk, uh, it should be possible to just build your own uh, components that uh, that do these things. Or one thing I talked about was uh, just making it easier to get started with a new project, and that's absolutely something that uh, that we don't have to integrate into the actual React code itself, and React shouldn't have to change to build any of that. So, uh, so really, I'm just hoping that uh, people can start start new projects that solve some of these problems and, and build, build on top of what we have with React. Cool, cool. Um, is, 
Well, can you give us an idea of some of the um, proposals that you made in your talk? Yeah, so um, like one of the things I talked about was gesture support. Uh, gestures is one of the things that people often overlook, especially on the mobile web, and is one of the things that often differentiates native apps from uh, web apps and apps that feel really good and native or versus apps that feel webby. Um, and as an example, if you take like the Maps app on your phone, it supports you can pan the map around, you can pinch to zoom in or out, you can uh, tap on something, you can double tap on something, and uh, the gesture system on iOS is able to distinguish between all of these uh, all of these gestures to figure out what your uh, what your intent is. And right now on the web, it's uh, it's a lot harder to build systems like this. And so um, I'm I'm hopeful that somebody can build a really solid gesture system. Uh, that makes it easy to uh, just add uh, certain gesture recognizers to your to your React components. That would probably look like just wrapping some gesture component around uh, around your views or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, and then it can uh, coordinate with uh, with the event system and figuring out how to uh, decide which gesture is active and then call the appropriate code when it decides that one is happening. Okay, cool. Yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of really good ideas, and I recommend that people check out Ben's talk. Uh, for more ideas on how you can contribute to the community in general. Uh, ben, is there anything else that you'd like to mention before we wrap up? No, it's, you know, I, I'm just, I, I just love being with the, the community here. There's, we have like 400 people here and uh, a couple thousand people watching the live stream, and it's, it's just great to see so much excitement about React. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Yeah. We'll see you around. See ya. <laughs> All right, um, so next we have Andres, and I can't pronounce your last name. All right. <laughs> Suarez. Yes. Good to meet you, Andres. Thanks. And um, why don't you give uh, like a brief introduction to yourself, who you are, and where? Yeah. Right. So um, I'm on the Nuclei team. Um, I gave a lightning talk yesterday on uh, uh, React Native hacks uh, that uh, Nuclide enables. Cool. Awesome. Uh, so can you talk a little bit more about what Nuclide is? Um, yeah. And what so, its purpose is in the React community. So Nuclide is a is an atom package that provide support for Flow, Hack, uh, React Native, uh, Mercurial. Um, we use it internally for development, and most of it is open source, and you can just uh, uh, install it. Cool, cool. So uh, what are some of the features that uh, you presented yesterday in your talk? Yeah, so um, well, to, to, to give some context, our goal with this is so that you all, all development for React Native happens in Nuclide, and you shouldn't have to go to the terminal or go to Xcode. So this this first flavor of features is to try to bring as much of that stuff in. So you have like the packager uh, right inside of Nuclide. You have the, the simulator logs. You have the debugger. You have the inspector. So the idea is that you have like one centralized place to do all of your React Native development. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I, I think. Um, that's really helpful because right now the React Native uh, development workflow involves a lot of different screens and, and oh my god, you have to have the, the, the terminal open and Xcode over here and your editor and then the simulator is on the side and you know and command tabbing and all of that is just it's just too much. Yeah, and even if you have like a giant 4K monitor, that's still like you're overloaded with different screens. No, it's not. So one of the things I I, I actually uh, showed yesterday was uh, with the simulator logs of in addition to just showing you, you know, normal output, they also show you errors. So when you red box in React Native, that shows in the simulator logs, which you have inside of uh, um, Nuclide. So if you happen to have one of the, you know, the simulator in the background, which uh, that's how I use it, like it's usually not in the same uh, view, I get to see that I have an error right away uh, without having to switch back or like you know move my eyes because if you're not have a giant screen, then I have to like. No, hands yeah. to the side. <laughs> yeah. it's like, no, it's, it's just right there in one spot. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so, what do you think uh, the future of Nuclide is? Uh, like, what what are some features that you're looking forward to uh, to add into Nuclide? Uh, so, um, I think there's two fronts on that. One of them, uh, at least for React Native, is uh, the debugger experience. So, right now, it's there, but I think there's a lot more that we can do. Um, so, stay tuned for that. Uh, on second is is performance. Uh, that's that's kind of been one of those things that Nuclide has not been so great on, uh, and it unfortunately has hurt a 
adoption. I mean, Nucleid's been around for almost a year in open source, and it really hasn't uh, gained that much traction because I think of the performance issues. But uh, it's been two months since we like revamped the experience, and it's a lot easier now. So it, it used to be painful to get it installed on, on your Atom, but now it's just uh, crazy easy. Cool. Um, so one of the things about the like the technology used to develop Atom or, or an Atom plugin, so it's all written in JavaScript, right? Yeah. Uh, so Ad so Atom uh, is, is part CoffeeScript and uh, a part ES6. Uh, Nuclide is like cutting edge ES7. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. So um, if if it's a feature, if if there, there's a language feature that Flow supports, we use it. Because uh, our, our code is 100% flow type. Okay. So we use async await and uh, we use static properties. We use like anything that we can that uh, flow supports, we use it. Cool. Do, do you know what stage um, flow supports? Uh, is it stage two? I think that was the default with Babel. I think it was a default, but I, I, uh, I think async await was actually a, a lower stage when it was when it was supported. Oh, okay. um, but, uh, and then we need to sync Yeah, <laughs> makes your code a lot easier. It, it is. It's so much nicer. Cool. Well, Andres, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to say before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, go download Nuclide. Uh, check it out at uh, Nuclide.io, documentation, videos, stuff. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Andres. Yeah, no problem. We welcome on two Eric's. <laughs> so it, I, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, so you're going to. Schleidel. Eric Schleidel. Yes. <laughs> and Eric uh, Rosel? Rosel, yeah. Rosel. Yeah. Good to meet you. Good to meet you. And nice to meet you. Thank you very much for coming on. So um, why don't we get just a quick brief introduction to each one of you, Eric, and then Eric. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Eric Rozelle. Um, we both work for Microsoft for a team within Microsoft Developer Experience. Um, our team in particular uh, kind of takes on strategic engagements with you know various partners, uh, both inside and outside of the, uh, the company, to um, a, a lot of times get open source tools onto the React Native, or not, sorry, onto the Microsoft platform. So, you know, recently we, um, some people on our team have done some work with um, uh, bringing Parse over to Azure, and likewise, um, you know, also working on like accessibility for um, Electron. We recently had a, a hack fest with the Electron team to actually work on some of the Windows accessibility issues, oh, which nice. directly back to Electron. So that's another example. But as, as Eric mentioned, some of our partners can vary from uh, small startups to large institutions to also nonprofits. And um, our, our engagement with, with Facebook and related to React Native kind of um, originated from the fact that we have partners that have the need to, they have interest in building the next generation mobile application using React Native. And they want to target Windows in addition to iOS and, and Android. Um, so that basically really spawned our, you know, our basically engagement into that project. Um, is as uh, Eric, Eric and I have been working on um, the React Native uh, port for Universal Windows platform for the last two months. Um, so the sole, for the sole purpose of being able to have UWP support for React Native on all devices actually support UWP. Some of the devices are. Windows Desktop, Surface, Windows Phone, Xbox, and then eventually Hololens. So we'll have React Native run on those devices for, for our partners. So our, our engagement is more directly kind of correlated to our partners' our partners' needs and interests. Okay, cool. So, but um, the fact that it's correlated to your partners' needs and interests, that it's like you're you're still gonna like all this is gonna be open source, right? Oh, Correct. Yeah, 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 most definitely. Like you know, our, one of our goals is eventually contribute this back to. Facebook's uh, master repo. Awesome. So we've already started working with, with Facebook in terms of doing technical deep dive on um, what what the implementation we have so far and um, you know gauging the feedback and incorporating that. So awesome. What so what's your all perspective on um, the like React Native's approach of abstracting away as much as possible to make it so that we can um, deploy it natively to multiple platforms? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's a I think it's a great tool set um, for uh, being able to sort of. I think uh, Parash was talked yesterday 
Uh, he covered some of the VS Code extensions and our code push stuff. I think that's an, an awesome ability to sort of have, you know, shipping agility and uh, continuous integration and things like that. The cross-platform approach is, is great as well. I think there's um, you know, a lot of great success stories. Yesterday they were talking about um, stories where there was 80, 85, 90% of the code shared yeah, in JavaScript. Right. That's fantastic. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, the um, amount of code that environment. Too. Right. And the amount that you get for free for just touch and image and all the other amazing native modules and, and views that you get from all those different platforms, you get right out of the box. You get that bootstrap immediately available. Like being this bootstrap in Africa in three and a half minutes the last time that, um, that was mentioned. So, um, you know, and, and, you know, it's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's so much potential that, that there's there. So, um, yeah, I mean, the abstraction is just one of the many benefits of React. Awesome. What, what are you really excited about with the project that you're currently working on with bringing React Native to the Windows platform? It's, I mean, we're just the, the, the sole purpose of the different devices that run on EWP and being able to take React Native beyond just the mobile platform, being able to actually run it on a whole different series of, of devices like Xbox and desktop. Um, so it, it opens up a whole different, you know, breadth of possibilities for how far we can take React Native. Um, also, I, I work pretty closely on another project called, um, so basically we're working with another partner of ours. Uh, we basically build an app so that it's more tailored for visually impaired people. And it's a 3D spatial audio app where basically it provides navigation and routing, um, basically verbal, verbal navigation and routing um, for visually impaired, and the phone basically goes in a pocket, and it's basically using stories such as "take me to you know point A to point B" or "what's around me." So for proximity um, points of interest near a given user, um, but it's all audio based. Mm -hmm. the, the interface is all audio based. So being able to use React Native for that, and being able to actually expand the React Native um, native module set for that for you know peer-to-peer -peer, uh, communication or Bluetooth detection for spatial audio would be pretty, pretty important. So, yeah, I think it's it's really amazing. Like we, we think about these upcoming technologies like VR, for example, and we think, oh, like man, this is going to be so cool for gaming. But we forget about like all the accessibility and like uh, all of the things that this is going to help with people who have disabilities um, in, in scenarios like you described. Yeah, very cool. Um, so. Maybe we can talk for a second about um, what it's like to develop um, a, a target for React Native. Like, how much time do you spend with the native code, and how much time are you spending like working with bindings for React Native to uh, the like native code? So initially, for us, we're, our main focus is building the back the, the back end, the core library, so the bridge between native uh, UWP to JavaScript. Um, because JavaScript engine for that case is going to be chakra. So mm -hmm. we're kind of at the very low level of being able to actually connect the two together. Um, also being able to build the native modules for um, animation and for touch and gestures and native views such as input box and um, scroll view and image. So it's kind of like starting from the ground up. Um, yeah, um, the only thing I would add is just basically, I think one of the cool things for React Native is that the native platform controls layout right now, which I know we're kind of talking about uh, moving towards you know layout layout moving up in JavaScript. But um, you know we didn't actually have to touch the JS libraries. We didn't have to build a Windows platform into React Native before we started uh, writing the actual native code. We can just mm -hmm. sort of piggyback off of what was already there for iOS or Android um, and sort of get experimenting there. And then as we mature, kind of start incorporating the rest of the, uh, the JavaScript library. Very cool. Very cool. So. Um, is there anything else about uh, this project or any, like, maybe this is always the question that you avoid asking, but um, I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, release date, is there any, like, uh, projection on the release date for? I think there's, right now, there's still quite a bit more to go, um, just logistics and um, just, just more work to go before we're ready for that. So I couldn't even couldn't think of Keep an eye out, yeah. files on Twitter. Yeah. We'll, we'll keep everybody we'll updated. On Twitter. Awesome. Um, you'll see pull requests on the, uh, on the React Native repo, so. Okay, is, um, if somebody wanted to get involved, what would be the best way for them to do that? I think once the once once we have a pull request that's ready to go, um, eventually we will, I mean, that's the goal, is to have a pull request back to Facebook. Once it's actually in a, in a stable place, um, we'll certainly document exactly how contributors can come in and help out 
because um, there's certainly a lot of uh, a lot a lot there for for a lot of, a lot that contributors can actually you know help out with uh, with with here in the academia. So cool, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Appreciate yeah. it, and uh, we'll see you around the conference. Yep, thank <laughs> thanks. And we have yet another Eric. <laughs> so, Lots of Eric's at this conference. Yeah, too. and in fact, you're not even our last one for the day. Oh, really? So, yeah. How many Eric's do we have in total? Four in total. Oh, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty good. I like that name. Just going to get rid of this, and I'll sit here next to you. So, uh, sorry, how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, Florenzano. Florenzano. Awesome. Yep. Let me just scoot this just. Are we live here right now? We are live, yeah. So you've Hello. got the live right there. Um, nice. So, Eric, you um, like VR. I do like VR. Could you tell? <laughs> so why don't you give us a quick introduction to yourself a little bit, and then we can talk a little bit about VR and JavaScript. Sure. So uh, I like I uh, I'm been doing web development for about ten years. Uh, started in the Django community. Uh, briefly took a couple years and, and did an app startup, uh, which I, I ended up at Twitter from that. Um, was doing a bunch more web stuff when I found React and did a bunch of blog posts about that. Um, and then sort of burned out a little bit and was, was trying to figure out what am I going to, how am I going to get excited about the next decade of, of you know, this industry? Where, where is it going and where, what, where, what's most exciting to me really about, about programming these days? And I realized that it's actually virtual reality. This is last year. Um, it's just I've been following the, the, what's been going on with virtual reality for years. I had the developer kits. I never knew how to sort of uh, use them. I, I'm a web developer, so I'm not a game developer. And so I, I undertook a project to sort of build up a, a, a little uh, game engine or a virtual reality engine uh, and using use JavaScript to manipulate that, that engine. And it ended up being a great project both for learning and for exploring and for, and for really diving in and, and, and getting an understanding of all this, this virtual reality stuff. I, you know, a couple of things that you said that struck me was uh, that like, you wanted to learn something new and, and you wanted to find out something that could keep you excited. And I think that people need to remember that um, like, you don't have to just keep doing the same thing you've always been doing. Yeah. Um, and, and look for opportunities to like, you know, do something um, different and, and excited, something that excites you and keeps you going. Um, in, in fact, that makes me think uh, Kyle Simpson just recently started writing a game just because like, he just was, wanted to have something to keep him going. So I think that's, that's a good uh, pro tip. And I'd say one thing I was surprised about is how transferable lots of these things were. If you dive into the low levels of creating a game engine, sure, you're going to need different skill sets, and you're going to have to do some reading. And I had to do a lot of reading about graphics. Um, but if you're going to just build a game, or if you want to just build an experience, I found that it's actually not that different from writing web app. Instead of writing you know, DOM code and, and JavaScript manipulation, you, if you're using Unity or something, you, use, you write C Sharp, and it's similarly scripting language, and, and, you can, and you can get all your stuff done at a pretty high level. Um, and that's sort of what I was getting at at the, uh, at the end there, where I was talking about A-Frame, where A-Frame is actually a pretty cool um, technology that's built on top of the web stack that lets you get into all this virtual reality stuff using the DOM and using some of the, some of the same ideas that I, I discovered and I talked about in my talk. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think if, if you haven't checked out A-Frame, I'd definitely check out A-Frame and, uh, and continue to watch what's going on with the web, uh, web VR scene and the WebGL stuff. Um, there's a lot that's going on there, and it could be that the internet is the real metaverse that we end up living in some days. Just the internet. Mm, very interesting. Um, so one one other thing that you mentioned that I, I think is um, um, I, I just need to call out is you said that it, like you worked on this small project. This is like a pretty big endeavor from <laughs> from what I saw. You basically like. You you found a really old make file from like six months or six years six ago. Six years ago. <laughs> yeah. This, so if you haven't watched the talk, you you, you needed to build Spider Monkey, but uh, there was nothing that like you could find to build it except something in SVN that was deleted six years ago to actually build it for I uh, for VR. I just think that's well. I, by the way, better ways to do it the way I did it. Um, actually, pro tip. If you want to get a spider monkey build, just build Firefox, and it spits out a static, a static binary of spider monkey you can copy and paste. Oh Found that God. out later. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's yeah, good pro tip. Anybody yeah. wanting to build spider monkey, there you go. <laughs> cool. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about what you see as the future of uh, the web, and um, like specifically uh, the VR space? How is that going to change our culture and change the world that we live in today? Well, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to predict things far out in the future, but I think in the, actually in the pretty near term, 
we're going to see VR used for, obviously, games are the big use case. And games are the, sort of the Trojan, I think of it as a Trojan horse to get into people's homes. But I think beyond that, there's, like I talked about, cre I think creative activities, things where you're, create, you're being creative in this virtual space, it's so natural that that's quickly moving into production. So architecture and 3D modeling and uh, things like uh, texturing and all the stuff that this content creation is going to start happening in virtual reality. Because you can always craft like the perfect tool to do exactly what you want to do at any given point. Um, that's something you don't get in your life. So it's, in some cases, it can be better than reality because you can sort of use the reality that you can create to your advantage. Um, beyond that, I think multiplayer experiences, this, I, this feeling that you get when you're in a virtual experience and when you're in virtual reality with someone else, is you feel this sense that you're really there with them. And it's hard to describe and it's hard to understand if you're just looking at it on a screen. Um, but there's this real sense of togetherness that you get. Um, people like to say social experiences. But when you think of social, you think of you know, Facebook and Twitter and all these things. I like to think of it as togetherness because you really get this sense of like you and I are sitting here that, you know, if so if I do something weird, like I get embarrassed in VR. But online, I could say something weird and not feel bad at all. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, maybe so this should uh, divert trolls then as well. No, you know, I've seen plenty of trolling in VR, <laughs> so we're going to have to deal with that just as well. <laughs> Can't ignore all the real world problems that come from these things. But honestly, though, that's the way I, so I think creative activities, games, um, and, and multiplayer experiences are going to be the first couple of things that really take off. And then going forward, I, I definitely see co-working, meetings, uh, conferences, things like this. Um, it's going to be a lot easier to do that stuff in virtual reality in a very actually not far term. Oh, that's cool. Um, and then beyond that, I think pretty soon when the form factor of uh, these things are huge, big goggles right now, and they're not yeah. going to be that way forever. They're, we're, they're, they're working quickly on these slimmed down form factors that are a lot more like glasses. And those are coming quicker than I think people are, are expecting. Oh, so that cool. will make it a lot more acceptable. I think. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, I think that was one of the challenges that Google Glass had when they were coming around. It's like, is this monstrous thing that kind of made you look a little bit nerdy? Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see what the future holds there. So one other thing that you mentioned in your talk that I thought was a little humorous is uh, um, avoiding making people sick. So like we, you know, on the web we have to think about accessibility. We have to think about a bunch of different things. But now with VR, we have to actually think about whether people are going to get sick using yeah. our, our application. So can you talk a little bit about like why is that a problem and how do you overcome that? So it all has to do with latency. So however long it takes for your, you move your body, and your, your brain expects to get the reaction from that movement right away. I mean, in, real, in reality, it's zero you know, frames, it's zero delay. Yeah. So in, in virtual reality, we found that um, the longer that it takes for that sort of movement to be translated to what your senses receive, so like your, the light that hits your eyes, if it's 150 milliseconds, for example, to move your head, which isn't all that much time, 150 milliseconds is pretty quick, um, most people will feel sick from that. But as you get that down to you know, 30, 20, 10, 8 milliseconds, you start to get to the point where almost virtually nobody gets sick from that. Um, and the thing that's difficult about that is a lot of times like there's, di there's difficulties where you might drop a frame here and there. Um, you might drop below. In, in video games, for example, on complex scenes and complex, you know, if it's a big action scene, sometimes these things drop down to 15, 20 frames per second. Um, and in virtual reality, it's not just a, like in, in, on an app, if you're scrolling and it starts to you know, be a little janky, it's annoying. In virtual reality, if you drop some frames and it starts to scroll, you feel sick. So mm -hmm. it's just such a more important thing um, to, to, to be able to hit these frame rates. That being said, all these companies are building techniques for sort of interpolating between frames if you, if you happen to drop one or two. So it's, it's not as quite as dire as I'm making it sound, but it's, it's, it's just something you need to be thinking about the whole way through building, building these experiences. It's just the performance and making sure that latency is so low. Um, because, yeah, like I say, it's not annoying, it's nauseating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that's going to be a really good thing for the web in general because we're going to start thinking a lot more about performance um, for VR, and that will translate to better performance for the web. So that, I think that will be a good thing, uh, good thing for us. So um, we're about done with our quick interview, but uh, is there anything, uh, like if somebody wanted to get involved, what, what should they do to uh, start working on VR with JavaScript? I'd say if you're familiar with... JavaScript, HTML, all that stuff, and you want to just kind of play around and get started, A-Frame is the way to go. A-Frame uses the DOM. It uses some of the techniques that I talked about in my talk to get high performance, uh, very, very good quality uh, VR out of the DOM. Um, if you want to get a little more serious and hit some performance targets and maybe target some of these more mobile devices, uh, I suggest going with 
Unity. Unity pretty much owns 90% of the VR market right now, uh, according to basically everything I've heard. But Unreal is not sitting still. And Unreal Engine is, is actually very, very good, too. So picking any one of those engines, they have you know, years and years and years of, exp of work on making these things great. And they've actually made them very understandable. And even on the Blueprint side, you don't even need to write code in text. You can, they've built an entire programming language out of this node-based programming. And I actually think that, if I may make a prediction, that in VR, we're going to very quickly see multi-user collaborative programming using nodes and not using text. And the cool thing about that is you can actually do some really good optimizations if you're expressing your code directly as ASTs. Interesting. Yeah. I think that uh, um, that's exciting. ASTs are exciting. Right? We yeah. should talk about that later. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah. appreciate you coming on. And now we have Helena. How are you? <laughs> How are you? It's good to see you. So good to see you. <laughs> Helena and I are actually personal friends. Um, so, um, but uh, you're, why don't you give us a quick introduction to yourself? Uh, I'm Helena. Uh, Prana and Recruiter at Facebook. Uh, I've been on Facebook for about two and a half years. Um, there's a lot of people there. Uh, very excited about the group. Awesome. Yeah, so you're a recruiter. What are you doing at uh, a developer I know. speaking? It's, it was the hoodie spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm very passionate about technology. Um, I went to JSConf in Berlin last year. I went to some of these places. And um, it's not obviously to recruit people, but just to get to know more what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So what? Uh, what was your talk about um, at React? Uh, yeah. yeah. So I've talked about uh, the importance of being findable. Now I know a lot of people. You know, they, they put statuses on LinkedIn saying, "Don't contact me. I'm not interested." On GitHub as well. It doesn't really. It's that wasn't the point of my talk. It was just to. to be able to be found by other people to share your ideas. Um, it's really important because I come across people that are nowhere to be found and they're expecting that we're going to do a lot of magic. Um, and they are working on really interesting projects, but it's really hard to find it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, what are some specific things that uh, developers can do to uh, make it easier to be discovered? So obviously, as I said, you know, technology that everyone is building has just given us so much opportunity to, to connect. Um, I was talking to a few people yesterday. Um, whatever your passion is going to come out somewhere. You know, Viju was discovered that he had a blog post. That's how he came to Facebook. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, you know, if you don't want to be in the open source, you have a lot of people, why not? But just being connected with the community is really important. So, that wasn't all that you talked about, though. Yes. So in, in your talk, um, you kind of went from, the, you know, like, we need to start the conversation. Yes. I need to be able to find you. And then you explained at least Facebook's process. And yes. I've, I've actually discovered personally that Facebook's process is similar in some ways to, to many companies. So I think that what you talked about was really enlightening for people, even if they don't interview at Facebook specifically. So can you talk about some of the, the process that, that you mentioned in your talk? Yeah, I when I was putting together a talk, I was trying to you know interview some people to see what's what's important, what what should this talk be about. I wanted to be informative, not especially for Facebook, but you know other technology companies, and not only for the engineers as well. Um, what I wanted, you know, the message that I wanted to give out is that don't be afraid to talk to the recruiter. Um, I know sometimes people don't have really great experiences with recruiters, but it's really completely informative. And if you're just randomly thinking that this company or you know, this recruiter has something to say and offer and share, and they're doing something great in the, in the community, you should definitely connect. And uh, a lot of the times people don't want to move forward because they're not really sure what to expect. Uh, sometimes recruiters are secretive, not intentionally, because we know the process. For us, it's really easy. You know, you finish one step, and then a recruiter says, no, now we go to the next step. I'm going to tell you about the step after that when you get there. And people feel like they're, you know, kept in the dark. And it's most of the time not intentional from the recruiter side. It's just for us, it's really natural how everything goes. But um, I found out that a lot of engineers who are interviewing at Facebook, interviewers, uh, don't really know what happens behind the scenes. And we do, and the hiring manager does, and it's really good to shed some light so people are more comfortable moving forward. Yeah, I think that and the interview process is probably one of the most uncomfortable processes like that, that we experience and, and um, putting as much transparency into that process as possible is 
makes things a lot easier for the interviewer. Um, and it, it allows them to put their best foot forward rather than uh, just being nervous about the process, which is really not quite as important as you know them showing you what they've got. Yeah. Uh, I think it goes both ways. If recruiters are very transparent about the process, then the, the person who's going into the interview process is going to also be transparent about the career. It does really go both ways. And it has to do with trust. And, you know, I shed some light on the whole process, but there's a lot of other things that you know, I do uh, share with engineers. And they, you know, they're just remotely interested. And have, I have a lot of people that are not interested right now, but, you know, they email me when they are or they want to connect to come to the tech talks. But I think, as I said, it goes both way. It really, it's really, really important to, uh, especially for the front end team, because it's so small. And I've been, you know, with that team for two and a half years. It's really personal. It's a personal connection. And I like, you know, engineers when they go through the process, they feel really confident and comfortable through the process. And I, I mean, I have copies with all of them, and if they're watching this. They're probably gonna know. There's a lot of them here at the conference. I maintain that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the um, like there there's like some people call it a tech short or a talent shortage right now. Um, can you give your perspective on what that talent shortage really means? And um, maybe like I know that some people actually do have a hard time finding a job. So can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, I think in the industry, a lot of the titles are really not defined. They might mean one thing, they want to and another in, in, in the other company, I get across a lot of people that say, I'm a front-end engineer, I work a lot with CSS. Uh, and that's my primary passion. And that's not what, what we think at Facebook about front-end engineers, it's not only going to be CSS. So a lot of the times, you know, when you look at the job post, people go automatically to that, but it's really good to, to connect with the recruiter just to get more insight and do some more research behind what that means for a specific company. Because sometimes, you know, when I say JavaScript, JavaScript can be jQuery, it can be Angular, it can be plain JavaScript. It's really defining those terms. I think it's really important, and that would make it much easier for people to see uh, what would be, you know, the the best way for them to, to approach uh, a specific team, and if that's really going to be something that they want. Mm, very good. Yeah, I I think. Uh, you hit the nail on the head. We just have so many different um, pieces of our industry that uh, it's easy to specialize in something and then uh, the terms kind of get mixed up a little bit. Um, so one other thing before we wrap up, I want to ask um, about um, how junior developers or, or entry level uh, developers can um, maximize their marketability. Mm -hmm. Is there anything, like any tips that you can give for you know, uh, people just graduating or just getting into software development to help them be marketable and find a good job? Yeah, be out there. Come to tech talks. Come to happy hours. See, you know, meetups. See what the community is like. Um, understand what the what the job is that, that you want to go to is. Um, connect with the recruiter. Keep connecting. It doesn't mean that you need to move forward right now. But you know, I know some other technologies companies might approach it different way. We at Facebook, especially front end, because it's so new. You know, JavaScript used to be not very a fancy language as it is right now. And now it really is. And from the shortage of people that are actually working in JavaScript, now we have a lot of people that are working in different places in JavaScript. Um, just uh, being out there really helps. It, sometimes I have engineers. I, it's really hard for me to find junior and senior because I have engineers that go through development boot camp. And I know a few of my engineers are going to watch this are going to be nodding. Um, <laughs> that have you know few years of experience, and they're not. You know, by industry standards, not considered senior, but they do really well through the interviews, and they join the company. And it's really, it's it's um, depends on where your passion comes out, mm -hmm. and it really does. It can, you know, you can code for a, a year, and you can, you know, that talent can come out and can be awesome. Cool, cool. Well, Helena, thank you so much. Thank you so Appreciate much. Appreciate you coming on the show, <laughs> and uh, I'll see you around the conference. Yes, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Um, Next, we have Isaac. Um, come on over. Thank you for coming on to the show, Isaac. For sure. Um, Sorry about my voice. I'm really glad my talk was yesterday. My voice has kind of looked deteriorated. Since right, are, are you getting sick? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been doing a bit of traveling recently. I think it's kind of catching up to me. Yeah. Well, sorry about that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm glad that you gave your talk yesterday, too. Yeah. Um, 
Isaac, why don't you give a quick introduction to yourself, and then we can talk about your talk specifically. Sure, yeah, so um, I work at Facebook on UI infrastructure, uh, and the thing that I've been working on for the last you know, really couple of years, two, two and a half years, has been building a rich tech center with React. And um, at this point, uh, you know, we've, we've used it in a bunch of different products across the site. Um, the, the one that really demonstrates all the features that it's capable of is the Facebook Notes product, which shipped in the fall. And uh, so, you know, trying to, you know, make the most of the, the solutions that we feel good about uh, Facebook and sense to, to go ahead and Yeah, that's super exciting. And, and what you showed, the, the demo that you showed at the end was really mind-blowing, uh, the capabilities of this editor. And, and the fact that um, the API into it, maybe the implementation is really complex, I imagine so, but the API around it seemed really, um, Quite simple. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So it's based on um, the same principle as like a, a, a controlled input. Um, so basically, if you have a React DOM input, you're passing in a value that represents what the state of, of the text is, and you have an object missing. And you can say, okay, what's the value of the target when our change occurs? And basically, you can maintain a, a control of the input. So we wanted to do something that kind of mirrored that API, but with a content editor in this case. So. Um, Kind of having a full state snapshot that contain all of the information about the editor at any given point in time, including contents of the cursor under the redo stack, uh, and be able to pass that directly to the component and have an on-change listener that would give you whatever the new immutable state snapshot was after some edits occurred. So trying to mirror that controlled input uh, API. Um, and then on top of that, when making changes of edits, moving cursor, anything like that, making sure that the API would make sense when making changes to the state. So trying to keep things functional, no side effects, that kind of thing. Sure, so um, you use content editable. Like, what the heck? Man? Yeah. Yeah, so can you talk about some of the, the challenges with the alternative approaches that sure. uh, you came against that finally made you go, okay, well, let's try this content editable thing? Yeah, so the initial approach that we were using for, uh, so this is used in our comment input on feed stories. The initial approach that we used for a long time, actually, the initial initial approach actually was content editable. Tom oh, really? Kino, like kind of like me and Elbow to like remind me that uh, <laughs> it was content editable. This was back in like two thousand nine. Well, what stopped you from? It just it was it had all kinds of issues because content editable has issues. If you if you try to just use it natively at it as is, you run into problems with like markup doesn't match up with one project to the next. You have to kind of sanitize everything, normalize all of it. Uh, it's just really hard to try to make that work across all browsers. Mm -hmm. um, so they moved over to a different than approach, which was just a plain text text area with uh, highlighter divs basically positioned behind that plain text. Like position absolute kind of thing. Uh, in this case, the way they did it uh, was to have spans with visible text within the visible text spans with text inside of it that would be the highlighted text, Whoa. and that would be positioned behind the plain text. Mm. So you can imagine certainly in a pre-react world, trying to maintain the state between these things. Yes. So um, lots of problems with that, especially when it came to like positioning things correctly. If you end up even like a little bit of a pixel off, like you have the highlighter that doesn't line up with the text, it's kind of a mess. Mm -hmm. um, so another option is to do kind of the Google Docs approach or code approach of like rendering your own cursor, positioning it absolutely, you're trying to position it within the DOM, but then you're dealing with more DOM measurement issues. You have to measure how much, like how big the characters are in order to put the cursor in the right place. So that opens up a different set of, set of problems. So we looked at content editable in large part because we got that cursor behavior for free. So it's like, okay, let's see if this works. Let's give this a try. And um, certainly trying to do a controlled content editable opens up different problems, um, but it was, you know, every, every kind of approach with, with the checks is going to have trade-offs. And this approach, we, went, we decided, okay, this is the approach. Yes, there are going to be trade-offs, but um, we felt good about, about that direction, you know, in large part because of dealing with that cursor behavior. We also, it was also important to us to be able to handle um, accessibility is a big right. thing. Um, the auto-growing aspect, you know, as you type more, the wrapper div just grows with it. Mm -hmm. uh, you get that for free. Um, I mean, I guess you get that with, you know, rendering everything anyway, but like, right. yeah. Um, so, I don't know, weighing trade-offs, it seemed like, okay, let's see if we can do this content editable, controlled content editable. And it worked pretty well for what we were trying to accomplish. Cool. Yeah. So um, I was going to ask, um, how do you feel about the like the final 
obviously I wouldn't expect that this is officially done for you. I, yeah. I imagine there's still more stuff, but how do you feel about where uh, draft is now? Uh, I feel, I mean, I feel good about it. I think there are always improvements that you can make. Um, that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to get it out, uh, out beyond Facebook. Cause it's, I think easy for us to be kind of myopic about what we were trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot, there's like definitely a broader conversation about what rich text looks like on the web. And I wanted to like contribute to that and be able to like have this be part of the conversation. Like there's no way that what we've just open sourced is the finished product for like this solves all problems for rich text on the web. That's impossible. You know, like certainly like with a project like this thing. But there's definitely, there's like, you know, rich text on the web can move in whatever direction, you know, uh, the community makes it go. So mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm just excited to have something that can kind of contribute to that. Yeah, absolutely. Really simplify things and make it easier for people to innovate on top of what you built. I hope so, yeah. yeah. That's very cool. So what do you see as the future of DraftJS? Well, so the thing that probably excites me the most, I know yesterday my talk was very much about the web and what we did with content editable, but really one of the key things about it, about the about what we open source, is that the model is completely independent of DOM. Um, so you can represent a really complex, rich document without even caring how you're actually rendering it or receiving it. So if somebody wanted to build that Google Docs approach of like moving Christian manually with that model, sure, you could do that. Totally do it. Um, but then, like, the really, really cool thing I think is going to be having React Native. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, you could do something that doesn't even use React if you want to, but I'm really excited about being able to use this model and integrate it with a React Native solution. Actually, the Facebook Groups app on iOS, when it shipped, React Native, and Spencer Ahrens, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the product engineers on that, on that product, um, basically forked what I had built for the, like, a very early version of Draft and built a React Native implementation for it. So I'm super excited about the things that can be done with that. And that's the kind of thing where it's like, because the model is just JavaScript, you can do whatever you want with it. And maybe the implementation would be like, I'm excited to see something come of that. That's awesome. It's really cool when something that you've built enables something you can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Isaac, thank you for coming on the show. All right, thanks very much. And we'll see you around the conference. All right, take Come on <clears throat> over, Scott. Uh, so this is Scott Kyle. Uh, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, why don't you give us a brief introduction to yourself, and then you can talk a little bit about Realm. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm uh, Scott. I've been working for Realm for a little bit now, and uh, I'm a Cocoa JS developer. Uh, so I worked at a startup called Inkling before, and at Apple, and, and then I co-founded the company uh, a few years back. And, and then uh, more recently, I've been doing some independent Mac development, working for Realm. Cool, awesome. Yeah. So uh, tell us about Realm uh, and about your talk. Okay, uh, so Realm is a database that is like an alternative to SQLite, uh, made to be like embedded in mobile apps. Uh, they've had uh, language bindings for Objective-C, Swift, and Java, um, and you know they got really excited about integrating with React Native, and then so that's kind of where I come in, and uh, my coworker Ari, uh, who got started on this before me, and um, we just pushed over the finish line and got it out the door yesterday. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot more to do, but, uh, you know, it's at the point now where, you know, it works on iOS and Android, and people can use it in React Native apps, so. Awesome, yeah, I, I think that's it's always exciting and kind of nerve-wracking when you work on something really hard for a long time, and then uh, when you finally open source it. So. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I, I think we've been getting really positive reception. So uh, that's, you know, makes me feel really good. And uh, yeah, I'm just psyched to, you know, make it better and better. I mean, like it has everything you need to, to use in an app, but uh, you know, there's lots of API that the other language findings have that you still gotta fill in, so. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah, so. Um, can you talk a little bit about the actual implementation of, of how it works, uh, the technology, uh, and like how how do you account for differences in platforms, those kinds of things? Yeah. So um, luckily, with uh, React Native, they use uh, JavaScript Core on both iOS and Android, at least for the time being. And JavaScript Core is like the, Java, the JavaScript engine that's using WebKit, mm -hmm. and um, so that's something uh, that made it easy for us to. Right, uh, you know, just basically one language binding to work with JavaScript core and then C++ 
and uh, put that on both iOS and Android. Um, so yeah, we, we need to access the JavaScript core context uh, in order to expose uh, you know special methods and you know functions uh, that you know you need that native binding to be able to uh, accomplish certain things that you can accomplish without. So sure. So it, um, I, I'm a little bit curious, and maybe this will sh demonstrate that I have no idea what I'm talking about. But um, with uh, how do you actually store the data in your database on the on the device? Is it in like file system or or how's that information stored? Yeah, so like SQLite, like SQLite has uh, you know like this one file, uh, and you know all the operations are done on that file. Realm's kind of similar. They they create a file uh, and it's a append only database, and so uh, they you know write snapshots to that file. The file's memory mapped, um, so that means like uh, you can access the file as if it's in memory, and um, and then it, it garbage collects uh, old. Snapshots that no longer needs um, as you as you append to it, and so that enables it to work really well in um, very multi-threaded environments, which is not exactly something we needed for for uh, the JS binding, but um, you know it's it's does really well um, in you know, lots of threads and uh, you know asynchronous calls and stuff like that. So cool, exciting. So. What uh, what do you see as the future for um, for Realm? What, like, what are some things that still need to happen um, for Realm? Um, well, we're I mean, right now we're we're pretty psyched about getting our JS binding looking in Node. Cool. Um, and uh, you know, just trying to get more and more developers to be using it and giving us great feedback on how to make it better. Um, you know, it's it's a really solid database as it is now. Um, you know, one thing that we're, we're really excited about is, like I mentioned, the, the snapshot feature with, with Realm internally is uh, we're trying to bubble that up so that uh, you can have snapshots of your data in JavaScript. So it works really well, like as immutable data structures with like Redux and stuff like that. Um, so we know that functionality is possible. There's just like a few extra bits that we need to put in there to make it all work together. Very interesting. So super psyched about that. Have your entire database in your Redux store. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Exactly. Uh, cool. So, if somebody wanted to get involved in Realm and uh, help out or learn more, uh, where would you direct them? Well, their their documentation and guides on their website is are just super phenomenal. Uh, so Realm.io. Uh, but you know, check out the check out the repo. I mean, it's. Uh, it has example apps. It has uh, you know pretty good build instructions, and uh, so there's a you know we really appreciate you know people checking it out and maybe sending us some PRs for some things to make it better. So. Well, is there anything else you'd like to talk about, Rob? Um, <clears throat> no, I mean uh, just psyched to to get it out there and on JavaScript. Uh, I love JavaScript, and uh, you know also excited about uh, Node and. Um, getting working on Node, so you know you just npm install Realm, and you can require it into your React Native app, require it in your Node, and it all just work exactly yeah, the same. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Exciting. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. Thank you very sure. much. And next we have Jameson Dance. Hello, hello. Thank you, you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So uh, you, sir, still have butterflies in your stomach. You haven't given your talk yet. <laughs> yeah. Two hours from now. Yeah. Well, that's your take. Well, why don't you give us a a uh, quick intro to yourself, uh, who you are, and, um, and then we can talk a little bit about Elm. Sure. So I'm Jameson Dance. Uh, I'm going to talk about Elm, even though I'm in no way affiliated with it. I just am a, a happy user. I think uh, most of us are that way with most of the technologies that we talk yeah, about. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not like on the Elm dime or anything. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, what else did I do? I do a podcast called JavaScript Jabber. It's a sweet um, podcast, by the way. And then I do a conference called React Rally in August. It's a community React conference in Salt Lake that you should all come to. Yeah. There's the invite right <laughs> There's there. There's the pitch. Yeah. <laughs> Let me invite you as my guest. Yeah. It's very cool. I went last year. It's awesome. Uh, maybe we hopefully can get a discount code for, sure. uh, for show viewers. Um, so check out the deals yeah. page later. That'd be awesome. Um, cool. So let's, let's talk about Elm. And what, what does Elm have to do with the React conference? That's a great question. So Elm is a functional programming language that runs in the browser. I would say its relation to React comes mostly from Redux. So Redux is basically Elm 
translated into JavaScript. Um, they were pretty directly inspired by the way you build applications in Elm. Um, and Redux has all these implicit rules, like your reducers have to be stateless and uh, kind of some rules about how you structure reducers together and how you manage your actions and stuff. And all that stuff is just built into Elm. Like you don't have to think about it because the, the compiler will tell you if you get it wrong and then you fix it. Um, so that's kind of how I came to Elm. I was using Redux, uh, heard about Elm, and, and just I liked it better, I guess. It's, it's also pretty React-like in that you, it has kind of the one-way data flow. You structure your app as a tree, and data flows down through it. So it uses the same kind of basic model as React, but um, in a slightly different way. Yes. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, so um, one question that I've had about Elm, and maybe this will like finally get me to give it a much closer look, mm -hmm. uh, is with, with React, they have the, the context to that you can kind of pass around. And it's sort of like this global variable that we're all like, uh, I know I shouldn't be using this, but I'm going to anyway. But someone smart said it was okay. Yeah, so yeah. So like the router uses it, and, and Redux uses it. Yep. Um, and it, it really actually solves the problem of drilling holes from like the, the top component all the way down. You have to pass uh, data all the way down to all components that need it. Um, and that like it's it solves the problem in a nice way, even though it's not entirely pure. Um, so how does Elm deal with this kind of a problem? So in Elm you're kind of encouraged to make your applications a little bit wider. You don't nest things as deeply. Um, you end up writing a lot of functions that just take in data and return stuff. So you don't have to drill through as many layers because there aren't as many levels in your application. It kind of sidesteps the issue a little bit. Um, there is only one like, top level app state and the only way you can get data into it is by passing it down directly. So their solution is just don't pass it down through as many layers. Interesting, okay. Yeah. And, and in your experience working with Elm, um, is like, is that a, a good solution for, for you? Yeah, I think uh, th this this applies to all my experience with Elm. For the first time, I try and do something, like, there's no way I can do this. And then I try and do it, and ask someone smart, and they're like, here's how you do it. Then I do it, and it's actually nice, and I like it. And so that was my experience with nesting things. Like, I want to nest stuff deeper. You know, like, don't do it. Just do it this other way. That sounds stupid. And then I, and like, there's no component local state. Anytime you mutate state, it's by sending an action that mutates the global app state. That feels weird. Like, you have some hover state, right? You have you add an on mouse enter and on mouse leave, and it and it can feel icky because you're so used to the convenience of having local state. Um, but it's nice to have some discipline enforced around it. It's one decision you don't have to make. You do everything the same way basically, and I think that. Even though sometimes that adds a little bit of complexity, globally it, it lowers the complexity. It's, you just do stuff the same way no matter what. No matter if you're clicking a button to like change pages or if you're adding like, an on button or something. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I, like, I, I totally agree. I, I just started doing Redux, obviously, very inspired by Elm, like you said. And um, I was just going to you know, control whether somebody's entered an input uh, into something. And, mm -hmm. And I was like, my entire application does not need to know if sure. somebody's entered input in this one little thing. Mm -hmm. um, but after doing it, I realized that it's just so much easier to debug things because everything is in one place. I know exactly where to go for any state in my application. Sure. Yeah, and, and now it even gets a little bit, I'd say it's easier than Redux because you, you kind of co-locate the different model chunks um, and the action types in with the components. Mm -hmm. So. You can look at an individual component, and you don't really have to care about how it's hooked into the rest of the app. You just know these are like the five actions this component can do. This is the state of the model, and this is how you update it. And then there's some kind of code that you use to hook to, to forward those actions down to the right component. But it it's pretty self-contained at the individual component level. Cool. Yeah, I I have more questions for you. Maybe I'll ask them later. Sure. Because uh, we're we're out of time. But thank okay. you for coming. Is there if somebody wants to get involved in Elm, what to where do they go? Oh man, uh, the Slack channel is pretty good. I think it's elmlang.heroku app or something. You can go to elmlang.org. That's the website, and then it'll point to a bunch of other stuff. So. Awesome. Cool. cool. Thanks, thank Ken. you. I'll see, see you around. Good luck on your talk. Thank you. Now I have Maria. <laughs> thank you very much. Appreciate you coming into nice uh, you. our uh, our little show here. Sure. So, um, why don't, Maria, why don't you give us a quick introduction to yourself, and then we can uh, talk about um, migrating or 
I guess, yeah, it was a migration from Ireland to England. Exactly. So I'm originally from Germany. I just got my bachelor's degrees last week. Oh, wow. congratulations. Wow, that's great. <laughs> and in the past two years, there have been three things that are really important for me. The first one is encouraging more women and girls to study computer science, because I personally think that's really important right now. Yeah, so do we. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Second thing is I'm really active within the leaning community, which encourages more women to accept leadership positions. And the third thing is that I contribute to open source projects, as I did with my and app in the past few months with React Native. Awesome. Yeah, uh, I'm big into open source too. This, this is great. We're going to be good friends. Nice. <laughs> cool. So um, your talk, uh, you talked about how you had an iOS app with React Native, uh, and you wanted to support Android as well. And it was kind of the process of kind of migrating and seeing how much you could share. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that process, about what you talked about? Sure. So first of all, I started with the app in general. Like I tried to run the app like it was in iOS and Android, but that didn't work that sure. well because not all components are the same. For example, in Android, you have the toolbar Android, and you don't have that in iOS. And the same way works with iOS and like iOS components you don't have in Android. So you have to find a workaround, or you have to figure out how you do that. And there are also components that are external libraries, and you don't have them in iOS or Android at the same time. Sometimes you do, but most developers don't have them right now because they just introduced Android for React Native last year, yeah, in right. October. Still pretty young. Yeah, exactly. So I was trying to figure out how to do that, how to wrap that components together. So I wanted to have as much shared code as how I wrote a code for those things. Mm -hmm. So um, what did like this is kind of the spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't watched the talk, but what was the final number, uh, give or take, on um, how much you were able to share? So for my app in general, it was 80% of shared code, which is pretty cool, I think. Because yeah. as we heard this morning or yesterday, we don't need two teams anymore. You just need one team that knows everything about your native, and that's it. You don't need iOS and Android um, teams anymore. Yeah, I think cool. that's really awesome. I, I know that there are other uh, frameworks that are able to, like, Put your code in a web view, and so then you have 100% code sharing. Um, but not it's it's not native, yeah. and and um, I think that it's really impressive that you're able to create a native experience and still share so much of your code. Exactly. Uh, so, what were some of the the challenges that you faced? Uh, like some of the bigger, more specific challenges that you faced uh, doing that migration. You mentioned the toolbar. Or did, was there anything else that was really difficult for that migration? Yeah, I think the most important thing is that you have to know where the React Native library is right now because a lot of things change all the time in Android and in iOS and your projects change. So you have to know how to deploy, how to run all of these things on which simulator and all of that. So, so that changes in the, in the last couple of weeks, it changes all of the, all time. I, almost every week you have a new change of that. So, wow. Yeah, you have to keep, keep up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, impressive. So um, after you like, Finish the migration. You're still uh, working to to keep things updated. And, uh, exactly. And there are still a few things that are not available on Android. For example, date picking options you have in iOS. It's like a native component, but you don't have it in Android on React Native so far. Mm. So I'm still waiting for that. For example, and I'm yeah. hoping that will come soon. <laughs> what do you do in the meantime for stuff like that? You just Probably don't show that feature. Yeah, or? exactly. Mm, or just I'm trying to find a workaround for that feature. Is exactly. Mm, I see. So um, what, what are some of the uh, things that were really exciting uh, to you when, uh, while doing this migration? And, and what, like, what makes you so interested in, in uh, working with React Native? I think the most important thing is it's based on JavaScript. You write mobile applications with JavaScript. I come from a web background, so I've never written a mobile app except in 2011 for Windows Mobile, which is pretty bad, but <laughs> at least I tried it. Yeah. And that was the first time, and since then, I was just, I had so much respect with Objective-C, and I did not want to touch that. <laughs> so I thought, OK, let's try React Native with JavaScript, and it's really awesome. Like, you get started, you understand it right away, and you can find such a great community online. And I think that's the best thing about React Native and React, because all the people here in that community. Very cool, very cool. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to bring up about um, this migration, or things that you're working on that you'd like to tell our viewers? Probably one. Thing about tech conferences in general. Like when you're meeting a woman in tech at a tech conference, don't ask the woman why she's in tech, ask her what projects she's done. 
that's super important in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll practice it. <laughs> we'll chat later. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Yeah. I, I think that's uh, that's something a really good thing to close on. So thank you for that. Um, and I'll see you around the rest of the comments. Thank you so much for coming so on the show. Thanks. We'll see ya. And uh, that is our show. So uh, thank you for watching. Uh, just a quick shout out to our silver sponsors, uh, FluentConf and AuthZero. You can uh, check that on, uh, them out on our website. And uh, next week, we're going to be meeting with uh, John David Dalton uh, about uh, JavaScript utilities and Lodash in uh, particular. Really excited about that. Uh, John is awesome. Uh, and so uh, tune in next week. It'll be at our, our regular time. Uh, and then the week after that, we're actually going to be at FluentConf um, doing another live show. So really appreciate feedback on these live shows that we do uh, so that we can make sure that we're providing the, the value that you're looking for um, out of a, a show at a conference. Uh, like I said, I promise the audio will be better next time. Uh, I really apologize about that. Um, if you have suggestions for us, please go to suggest.javascriptair.com and uh, you'll fill out a form, uh, suggestions about the, the show in general or this specific episode. Um, and then if you have, actually, sorry, that was feedback.javascriptair.com. If you have suggestions for um, uh, for upcoming shows and topics, go to suggest.javascriptair.com. And then um, our deals page, make sure you check that out, javascriptair.com slash deals. And uh, we have a couple of uh, discount codes and stuff on there. We, I just pushed up another one this morning. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's it. So thank you very much for watching, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Uh, and I can't uh, stop the broadcast. Goodbye. <laughs>